0: All right, welcome to uh, a new uh, episode of Growing Down. We have a returning guest today, Andres Bernal. Andres, welcome back to Growing Down. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. So prior to this uh, recording, we were kind of talking about where we can go uh, with the show. Uh, Ryan's currently read Stephanie Kelton's latest work, Deficit Myth, and and I've familiarized myself with some of the chapters. But we thought we'd just sort of start off by talking about the current political landscape and maybe how all, all of these big ideas can kind of fit together, especially with like an integral politics framework. And um, I, from there, we're just going to kind of be open to kind of what questions come up. So Andres, I was wondering if maybe you had a little bit of a take right now. Uh, the Democratic Convention just happened, uh, big and exciting things uh, Mr. Biden accepted the nomination. And just right now, with your finger on the pulse, um, how do you see the political landscape and where do we go from here?
1: Well, you know, I, I think we're, we're living in a really tense time. Um, it, it's kind of one of these situations where a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of people are coming together and, and basically saying, all right, we need to get this guy out of office, out of power, because he is a threat. on, on so many levels to just everything from basic decency, uh, any, any, any kind of value whatsoever of (laughs) whether truth exists, um, or in in any kind of sense. Right. Um, and, and, and at the same time, um, all of the, the damage that's happening to the foundation of, of just institutional life, but at the same time, you know, it's, it really seems like nothing really is being offered except Let's just get this guy out of office. Vote for us because we're not, you know, we're not the devil. And um, I don't know how inspiring that can be. Um, we're living through a multiplicity of crises, we're living through, you know, a pandemic, and people are really feeling it. And this is not something that's gonna go away anytime soon. And so amidst all of this, to kind of have a situation where the, where the opposition is kind of just saying, well, we don't really have a plan, except we're not as awful as this guy. You know, that's kind of worrisome. In addition to that, we, we just kind of learned a few days ago that a top Biden advisor is already talking about how if they get into power in, in January, that they're already going to start having to think about how to reduce the deficit and the debt because they 're not going to have any there's going to be according to them there 's no more money left to to finance anything because of the things that Trump has done thus far, and so we 're already kind of starting on, on on the wrong foot in that sense, and um, you know that's going to lead to a lot of volatil- a lot of volatility. these are very similar circumstances to what has produced world wars in the past uh, revolutions in the past, uh, and so it's it's certainly An anxious situation to to be in. But, you know, at the same time, there may also be some opportunities to continue to break apart these accepted paradigms that people are taking for granted. Uh, And and given the seriousness of the climate crisis, um, I think that that's key.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess maybe we can, I thought it'd be really interesting to come up like if we, if we had maybe more power, if we had a say as far as what this new paradigm might look like, kind of what we, uh, you know, sort of we we would envision. Um, Do you believe it kind of starts with that conversation around sort of the deficit myth?
1: I think that's fundamental because, you know, my colleagues and I have kind of been developing this idea that at the center of these 50 years or so, of what a lot of people call neoliberalism, right, starting in the 1970s and really taking hold when Ronald Reagan takes power in the United States, um, so much of, of of the way that that era has been ingrained into our everyday lives on a very visceral level politically um, revolves around this notion of how we conceive of money and um, how that limits what it is that we can do to respond to anything. Um, it, it's really interesting because when you think back to the Great Depression, <clears throat> a similar debate was happening around the gold standard and you know, Keynes and John Kenneth Galbraith and some of these people were really starting to challenge the common sense around accepting that the gold standard was just like this thing that we had to have, that it was the best way that it, that, you know, it facilitated free trade across the world. And it was the only way to have sound finance and um, it was maintaining the, the, the global economic order and whatnot, you know, when really it was kind of like this British imperial system that had been set up to force the entire world to enter into a certain tree, free trade agreement. Uh, That kept breaking down. Why? Because like, it limits what you can do if you have some kind of, you know, artificial uh, scarcity around your money and your capacity to mobilize production on things, mobilize the provisioning of needs. And so in in that era, you know, we we had some victories around that. We were able to mobilize um, to provide a lot of relief and a lot of investment on things. And that's kind of like the new deal. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of that too happens because of the war and um, the excuse to go to war, you know, happens to be one of the reasons why we kind of put that stuff aside and really mobilize. So today we kind of find ourselves in a similar situation where our, our entire political consciousness is kind of organized around taxpayer money and, um, Uh, you know, and finding ways to finance things and worrying about the deficit and how the debt's about to make the country go bankrupt any second now. Um, And, uh, you know, buy gold, return to gold, right? These things are kind of so still ingrained in the way we think about things. And it's only been the last couple of years where because of a lot of the MMTers and people like Stephanie, that's just being uh, challenged up front. And, And that really, I think, Summarizes our strategy because we we have we know some people who, for example, understand that that a government doesn't function like a household and some of these things we've been saying, but they just think that the public isn't really ready for that and that we just have to kind of concede this battle for now. Um, our our strategy is a bit different. We just want to go head on and take take these these myths head first and be like, no, that's just not how it works. Um, and in doing so, hopefully. Um, kind of expand what, what the public imagination can be about, you know, the, the purpose of the polity, right? The purpose of this society that we all occupy.
2: Yeah, that's great. So this actually leads directly into a question I had about how politicians who are advocates of MMT, say you or I decide to run for office, what would be the best way to frame and message this, knowing that there would be a whole cascade of attacks and straw mans and, you know, Fox News would have a heyday with this and say say, oh, you guys are delusional. They just want to print money and they're going to end up like Zimbabwe or whatever. So what do you think would be the best way to frame these, these uh, economic questions in a way that would best prevent confusion from the general public and also refute and push back against all of the inevitable uh, attacks that are going to come our way?
1: Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. I mean, you know, there's different, there's different um, contexts and situations where different our debates can happen, right? Um, Going on the news and communicating with the public is not the best place to have like the technical, you know, debate about all of the different aspects of central bank operations, for example. But, uh, you know, I think that right now, the, the deficit and the debt is kind of like this empty signifier, where people project all of their economic insecurity onto this thing called the deficit. So even if unemployment or low wages or, or, you know, the different ways that people are suffering right now um, have nothing to do. And in fact, sometimes are the opposite of the deficit. That's what kind of, they project it it to be, Oh, it's, 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 it's the deficit, right? Like it's very easy to reduce everything to this one kind of boogeyman. And I think the big reason for that is because, um, Nobody has tried to challenge it, that, you know, you have a bipartisan consensus from really from Bernie Sanders, all the way to Ron Paul, that everybody just agrees that this thing is true. Um, And so what we've kind of been organizing around is to just say, you know, to push forward the idea that we need to start talking about what happens when you start spending, you get money into people's hands, you start stimulating the economy. You give people healthcare. You mobilize the kinds of resources that we need, that we depend on to thrive. Which right now, uh, during this pandemic, we are experiencing in a very serious, visceral way what it means to kind of not have a um, um, to, to not have an economy, to not know if you're going to be able to pay your rent. Uh, all of these problems, right? And then we are seeing that. You know, the the government was able to produce trillions of dollars for the CARES Act, uh, much of which goes to maintain the financial system, much of which gets mediated by, or, you know, there's these financial intermediaries and it just happens, right? Like the whole question of where we're going to find the money disappeared when, when we really needed to, because otherwise everything would have collapsed. Same thing that happened in 2008 with the great financial crisis. And the same thing that happens whenever we want to escalate or expand the military budget. So I think pointing out that Republicans and um, Republicans already kind of understand this, even though their rhetoric is something else, when they want something for them, they just do it. And if we're talking to a, a community of progressives or liberals or just working people who who are afraid of this, we say, look, like, when it comes to the military, when it comes to bailouts, when it comes to tax cuts, this question is even on the table. But when it matters to the things that are going to make your life more stable and more decent, so that you can then go have more economic freedom, so that you can maybe start your business, uh, or so that you can, um, you know, engage in commerce in a functional way. It's not there, right? I mean, it's very difficult to have an economy when people will go potentially bankrupt if they get sick or if they get cancer. Uh, it ruins lives, right? That everybody gets told that you have to go to school uh, to kind of have, and, and, you know, statistics show that you are, your opportunities to get a relatively uh, decent job go up substantially when you have a certain level of education or whatnot. Um, people, some people just want to learn, some people just want to like, you know, develop their mind in certain ways. You can't do that unless you go into like crazy debt. Uh, And so just, it seems like to participate in society, you have to take on all of this private debt. And the things that would stabilize that or provide public goods that basically say, no, for these fundamental things, you don't have to participate in the market because that's not what will make the society stable. There's no money for that. Uh, so, you know, to answer your question, I, I think that just saying, uh, speaking to people very frankly uh, and saying that when it comes to things that have nothing to do with, your, with average people, money is spent like crazy, uh, but it's only not there for these very important things and running with that and trying to, you know, showing people what happens when we win. Like things get built, infrastructure gets built, healthcare gets provided, right? Uh, I think that's the way to do it.
0: Yeah, last time we were also kind of talking about maybe why you thought, you know, Bernie lost. And I remember we talked about there was an incoherent narrative, right? This lack of a vision as far as what this actually kind of would look like. And so some segue into this a little bit, it kind of, you know, the whole debate on, and on some of the shows we've been talking about socialism versus capitalism and is, you know, it benefits the rich. And so it seems like we're moving our chips into the table in this political system that's really focused on, they seem to know what MMT can do. They, you know, it benefits the military, you know, the, the, the tax credits, etc. cetera. Um, so I'm really interested in perhaps, if MMT was on board and the people did get it, what, how would that change the narrative And what is that, if we can visualize perhaps, how does that change society?
1: Yeah, I think it moves us away from this internalized culture and mindset of scarcity, where everybody thinks that, you know, nothing can happen unless they lose something. Nobody else can, you know, we can't address the history of like racism, unless I'm worse off, if I'm not a a person of color or whatnot, right? if, if I have some kind of professional career or whatnot, working people can't have healthcare because that's gonna make me worse off and poor. It's, it's that scarcity mindset around the notion of commodity money and private money that is driving a lot of these problems. Um, and even, even under the progressive narrative of, okay, if we tax super rich, then we can have some of these things. I mean, not only does that kind of create a, a, an enclosed political space of what we can actually do because it's only, it's only what's already there. Right. It also uh, implicitly forces us to have to like keep producing rich people so they can keep paying for our things. And and that's like also a losing strategy in the big picture as, as, as well. Right. Um, and uh yeah, I mean, I think that that's just not gonna that's not gonna get us anywhere, um, and and it kind of misses the point of of a more transformational kind of goal where it's not just about you know the typical conception of a welfare state where the market economy produces inequality and then you tax the people who made it the best so that we can have kind of basic standards for everybody else. Um, it's about how you use resources to begin with and for what purposes. So, you know, I, I'm, I definitely want to tax the super rich. I don't think billionaires deserve to exist. I think to become a billionaire, you have to be part of an extractive, exploitative industry or in some way you have to monopolize something. So it's not like, you know, the, 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 the oligarchs that exist, it's not their hard work that gave them that level of wealth. It's the way that their position in society has some kind of control over industry or work or um, markets themselves, things like that. Right. So yeah, I want to tax them because they have too much power. And oftentimes that kind of oligarchic power creates monopolies that distorts prices because, uh, and and has all kinds of, um, I think distorting prices is, is not the best way to say it, but, when when you when you are a monopoly, you can set prices wherever however you want because you have that kind of authority, right? And so that creates a certain kind of inflation. Speaking of inflation, right? Uh, right now, healthcare costs are inflated, real estate is inflated, rent is inflated, and it comes from private sources as opposed to like too much government spending, right? So yeah, so I want to tax the rich, but like to think that that is the only way we can do important things just limits our our capacity, right? So moving away from this notion of scarcity, uh, to a kind of responsible abundance where we can start to say, all right, what do we, what do we want society to look like? What do we need? What do people need? How do we ensure, uh, that we set the conditions for like human flourishing, right? Uh, what kind of resources do we have that we haven't been activating yet? Right. We have a lot of people who are homeless, a lot of people who are like, you know, working in precarious jobs, getting, barely getting by a lot of people that are unemployed. Um, we have a lot of space. We have a lot of just, we have a lot of resources that are not fully being developed and we have a lot of things that are being in I would argue, um, a lot of resources that are being used wastefully.
0: You know? hey, Andres, can I, can I ask you something? Yeah. Do you think MMT really scares the shit out of capitalists?
1: Um, I, I think so. Um, well, for one, it kind of like, yeah, I, I would say it, it really asserts that we don't need them in the way that we think we do. And when, we, when people realize that you don't actually need capitalists, that the, the very um, idea that all of the economy, and this speaks on this issue of like what even is an economic system, can all be reduced to like what capitalists do um, when you realize that that's largely a social construction, it's a legal construction. uh, It's, it's a political decision set of political decisions. Then, um, I think you get to a point where you can really start to um, build a different kind of power and, and invest in the things that are, that are really necessary.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, when I, when I'm reading more about this and again, I, I don't really know, I've been trying to read a little bit of Marx and understand how labor kind of fits in this and how, you know, maybe even like the accepted unemployment rate is uh, you know, capitalists want to have people. I think you were saying on this last show that you can, you want a pool of people that you can say, you don't want to work for, you know, minimum wage here. Boom. I got 12 million other people here that are ready to come in and take your job. So there's, you know, that kind of builds in this scarcity mindset. And I think, you know, just thinking about maybe why people aren't accepting this idea is just that there are people in power that rely on this system to stay in power. And and by doing this, you're, you're actually, while you're democratizing the economy, you're also pretty much kind of giving away your power to determine how things should be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, so much of what makes a, an economic system function is to, you know, get to a point where people believe that, that it's real, that it's natural, that, that the economy we occupy is a naturally existing thing. And if you go all the way back to, like, the classical economists and Adam Smith and all these people, I mean, like, they were operating under a premise, uh, very influenced by, like, John Locke and these people, that essentially said that the state of nature was like the individual, uh, and the individual going into the world to trade. And that really has nothing to do or no evidence with like how actual civilization evolved. Um, There there is really no state of nature. I mean, this is really also where like the big debate and disagreement is with like libertarians. Um, the, The fundamental point of departure for humanity is not the individual. Um, that's kind of very much a cultural thing we like to talk about, but no human is, 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 like mammals in general, cannot really exist and survive outside of social context. We simply cannot do that. We, you know, when we're babies, we're unlike perhaps reptiles and some other species, even though to some degree they also rely on some kind of social structure. Uh, we can't survive without caretakers and without a society. And so um, a lot of what MMT does philosophically is reject the very notion that the point of debar- departure and that there's this like state of nature that starts with the individual. That doesn't mean that like individual dignity or, or rights or freedom don't matter. That's, that's not true, right? It, it, all individual freedom and dignity matters. Um, but how to go about assuring that looks very different uh, when some individuals occupy more power than others, right? You get to this point where to talk about the objective individual starts to look like certain people while others are kind of like, oh, well, they're, they're not really individuals. And that's kind of been like the story of, of the last few thousand years where certain people are just denied rights in general, or you can, you can create a constitution that says all men are created equal and hold slaves at the same time. That's kind of what happens, I think, when you, when you think that like the starting point is just the individual.
2: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting and kind of um, reminds me of how I want to get into some of the political philosophy uh, very quickly, uh, very soon. But just really quickly, I just have a question about what your ideal tax plan would look like. And my, my curiosity for this was peaked when I was watching uh, Delman Coates on YouTube. and when, I think he was like for a lieutenant governor or something. And one of the things he was talking about in his tax plan was he was talking about with, with you know, MMT insights, you can actually cut taxes for certain groups, you know, like certain lower income brackets. Um, and what I thought was interesting about that was that he was kind of hijacking like fiscally conservative talking points. Um, yeah. So do you right. have any thoughts on that? Or what would your ideal tax plan look like?
1: No, I mean, uh, and Delman Coates is great. I think everybody should, should hear his stuff. He's doing some great work um, and he's a fantastic ally. I think like, for example, taxing labor is, is, is like not a very productive thing. I, I don't think that we should, you know, continue this whole um, uh, FICA tax. Um, what's the, what's the other one? Oh, losing it right now. But um, basically taxing people's earned income, I don't think is, is is that great of an idea. We've set it up. Payroll, taxing payroll, all of these things, we've set it up to, so that we all kind of believe that that's the only way we can have Social Security and Medicare. Um, you know, Roosevelt and the New Deal people, the architects of these systems, they kind of believed that that was the only way that people would feel that they had a sense of ownership of Social Security and, and, and Medicare and that they would protect it. Um, fast forward to today, you know, a lot of us believe that that is literally the only thing that's financing these programs. And so we get into debates about like solvency issues and all these kinds of things. But in reality, like you don't need to tax people's income or payrolls in order to have social security and Medicare. You can just have a government that no matter what happens has to finance these programs out of just responsibility and, and, you know, human rights or whatnot. Um, So I, I think like, I would, I would say that uh, there's not as much need to tax working people, uh, to tax labor. There's more need to tax environmental bads, uh, to tax pollution, uh, to tax um, really un- obscene amounts of wealth um, to avoid that to happen. And, uh, you know, progressive taxation is still something I, I support because... Um, I think I think it still has has a role to play. Um, even if you think about like inflation, there are many different ways to com- combat inflation. There's not taxing is not the only way. It's sometimes it's not the most ideal way. But even if you want to take money out of the system, it makes more sense that money starts getting out of the system. The wealthier you get um, for inflation purposes, so that makes more sense to uh, to me. So um, yeah, I think I think moving away from You know, and I think this is one of the problems with the Democrats where, like, they get caught up in this debate where it really feels like the people getting really hit the hardest with taxes are those in, like, this kind of upper middle class. Uh, I think that's unnecessary. I think keeping that relatively stable is, is fine. You know, once you start getting into, like, hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and then billions, yeah, like, crank it up. Right. There's no need for that. Like there really is no need for people to have that amount of power and control over a society. So, you know, I don't really think about specifics too much, but more or less, that's how I would approach the problem.
0: Um, another. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, another area I wanted to bring up was the, the too, too big to fail theory. And, and really, how does MMT address sort of that issue? Do you mean in like, yeah, in banks. So yeah. like right now the the argument is that these are so intertwined with our economy that they can never fail. And right. so there's you know there, yeah. So I was just wondering what MMT, how does how does that does it national or is what what is it how does MMT fit into that theory? It's a great question because first of all, when you understand MMT,
1: you realize that um the, the notion that they're too big to fail and a lot of the Justifying logic for like some of these uh, uh, some of these um, integrations of a lot of these institutions, like the 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 repealing of Glass-Steagall and, and some of these acts, were premised on the notion that we had to do that so that they can continue to invest and provide the you know the, the funds for the economy and whatnot. And that's only true if you believe that money is mainly a private thing, that money only comes from the profit motive or from savers. Etc. So when you understand that, like, actually, no, like if we had good fiscal policy and a responsible government, um, if wall street collapsed because of they were speculating and doing predatory things, you know, fuck them. Like, right. The, the reason right. we're <laughs> the reason we're kind of screwed now is because we don't have any plan B. We don't, we like, nobody is ready to step in and like stimulate the economy and, 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 and provide that stability. Uh, so then, okay, yeah, like, we only have like these, these, these mega corporations and mega banks. Um, so that's like the first big insight, I would say. The second one also is, is this idea um, that a lot of the uh, fundamental people that that inspired MMT, people like Hyman Minsky, a, a famous economist, he talked about like the instability of finance. And so if fiscal policy is not providing like, income into the economy, what we've done is we've outsourced money creation to private banks, right? Um, Private banks don't need to have some vault with a bunch of money to lend. It's the same, it's very, they just give out loans. And when they give out a loan, they're effectively creating money, right? Um, One of the things that's happened is like, as we experience kind of artificial economic booms based a lot on, on, private credit, uh, and people going into debt, taking out credit cards and whatnot, uh, people in the financial system will start to encourage more deregulation because we have such a revolving door with government. Uh, It's much easier to do this. And then people get riskier and riskier. They start to like do sketchier things to try to like push the envelope on how to like increase profits. There's a lot of accounting fraud that happens where, you know, Two plus two cannot equal five, in math. But in accounting, it can. <laughs> in accounting fraud, it can. And that was one of the ways that the 2008 financial crisis was facilitated. A lot of like predatory and fraud, control fraud. People inflating profits. People inflating the appraisals of homes, um, so that they can get higher kickbacks. And of course, all of the regulators were like former. Um, executives in many of these banks as well from the government. And so you get a situation where it's just like a lot of, a lot of moral hazard, uh, a lot of predatory behavior. And so um, in addition to being, to, to kind of asserting that we don't need them, um, you know, kind of a deeper MMT project would be to say, we need to start regulating banks far more tighter than we do now. Um, and that speaks to the some of the work that's happening. So like Nathan Tankis, who recently is kind of uh, exploded on the financial scene, a friend and colleague, colleague of mine, he's doing a lot of work on what like MMT monetary policy would be, and around inflation around price stability, uh, which is something we take very seriously. And we understand that it's not just, oh, there's too much money, therefore Venezuela, right? No, it's like political, structural, limits, conditions, uh, it depends on the country. It depends on the context, depends on the industry. But one thing about inflation is that, um, you know, a lot of inflation comes from the private sector. A lot of inflation comes from financial speculation. A lot of inflation comes from people, you know, using resources to like, either build too many casinos or golf courses or things that are not really providing a lot of, a lot of value for a lot of people. Uh, or also just speculating on, on on prices or whatnot, that needs to be controlled a lot tighter. Um, and so you know what that does is it like puts it, it's a tool to like keep confla- uh, inflation under control a lot more. Um, so does that mean the net the, the socialization of the banks? I, I would say ideally, yeah, that's what we should aim for. Um, that doesn't mean you can't have private banks, you can have them, but I think like you know we have to be a lot more clear about what they're allowed to do because. I mean, private banks didn't just grow out of the ground. Like private banks are given authority through a charter uh, by the public, right? So we got to kind of uh, be a lot more, I think, uh, responsible about what we expect from banks, which is in our power uh, as a public to do so. Um, I think also we, we, can, we can start talking about like uh, the role of, of like local lending uh, through more credit unions, through more kind of publicly or or, or community-controlled financial systems, right? Um, all of these things can be supported by good policy. Uh, so you know, it doesn't just mean the government. Some central bureaucracy is going to control everything. I think we also have to start talking about democratizing uh, a lot of what we mean by the public. We're also providing maybe third spaces for. Community controlled alternatives to direct state and private actors as well.
2: That's great. Um, I actually have a question uh, from Matt Segal, who just texted me on Facebook. Yeah. And during our little um, Michael Brooks tribute, he had, he had a question about MMT. So I'm just following up with it. And, and it was about the reserve status of the US dollar. Right. And I'll just read what he texted me and then you can kind of riff on it. So he said, uh, about the reserve status of the U.S. dollar, giving us an inflated economic power for the last seven decades that will no longer be in place as we shift to a multipolar world. I don't think it's a critique of MMT as much, since the principle still works so long as we tax the billionaires at the right weight, rate to avoid uh, to avoid inflation from all the money printing. It's just that we in the U.S. have grown used to our currency being the reserve currency of the world. We literally hold the rest of the world at gunpoint to maintain this. And that once we lose that status, there's going to be a huge leveling of the scales and our quality of life is going to fall and the power of our dollar to uh, to fund a rebuild of the whole economy will be that much less potent.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions on the left that they've bought into a right-wing economic theory, thinking that it's left-wing. Um, and in a lot of ways, like, reifying all of these, like, fetishizing money and fetishizing the way money operates, you know, kind of attributing, like, these special powers uh, without looking at the underlying structural meaning behind some of these things. So the, the, the U.S. having a reserve currency screws over other countries it is a one of the consequences of U.S. imperial hegemony, but it is not the cause of it. And if does that make sense? It, it, so, I mean, what does having a reserve currency mean? It means that everybody wants to do their accounting in dollars, right? It means that people want to sell us their stuff. That's okay. If that were not to be, if the whole world didn't want dollars to sell us their stuff, that would not mean that some huge collapse would just come out of thin air and that all of a sudden the dollar would not have any value. You can do whatever you want in in the United States with dollars. You can mobilize whatever resources we want with dollars, period, right? There's kind of like this very weird misconception that we won't be able to do anything if if it weren't the reserve currency we would be better off if we were not the reserve currency. Um, When the British pound was going to not be, was kind of in a battle with the US dollar over reserve currency status, a lot of people in the UK were like, yeah, good. Because being the reserve currency has also facilitated a lot of the industrialization of the US. Uh, We've invested a lot less here Because we've just allowed like everything to get outsourced, and part of that has been kind of creating this like reserve currency status for, for for the U.S. dollar. Um, So you know, for me, like this really starts to get into like weird conspiracy theory world where then we start talking about like the petrodollar, and 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 you know, I think a lot of it is well intentioned. Um, I think we absolutely should be anti imperialists but I don't think the economics is really there, and a lot of this is kind of just you know, in a lot of ways playing into weird Ron Paul conspiracy theory (laughs) myths about, about what money does. Um, So, I mean, we need to think about like, you know, what is the role of trade? Um, International trade in particular, do we just want to like everybody trading with everybody because it's just good on its own, its own terms? No, I don't think so. I don't think just free trade for the hell of free trade is, is good on its own terms. I think we need to talk about, uh, obviously fair trade, but we, we need to talk about like, all right, what, how are we going to meet the world's needs? How are we going to meet our needs and how are the, how is the world going to meet their needs? So I do a lot of work and I think a lot about like Latin America. Uh, I'm Colombian myself. So, you know, I think a lot about how does MMT apply, which is like one of these weird criticisms that we get where it's just like, Oh, it only works for the U S it's like, no, it's a framework. The framework gives us different insights for what, like Latin America or the, or the global South looks like. So in the case of Colombia, for example, you can say the Colombians have a peso. They can spend as much as they want of that, right? But because of the way that the trade relationship exists between countries like Colombia and the rest of the developed world or the, you know, these imperialist nations, food, energy, and technology is most always imported from a country like the US or Canada or Europe. Even in countries like Venezuela that have like oil reserves, they're not refining it themselves. They're like cheaply exporting it and then importing like the expensive value added stuff. So you you have countries that depend on importing the things that are most important, food, energy, technology, and exporting all the raw materials at like really low wage labor costs. All right. That has created a situation where like, yeah, everybody wants dollars. Um, Countries are indebted in dollars, not in their own currency. And they go down this like hole that they dig themselves into. So we need to start to think about what does it mean for the rest of the world to have some kind of like agency about their own economies, you know, to be able to say, all right, we're not just going to like depend on you know, we are a vastly ecologically diverse nation. We're not going to be importing all of our food just because, I don't know, Chiquita banana forces us to, right? So this is, these are political battles uh, to create different kind of policy spaces. Um, but, you know, if, yeah, if the US was in the world reserve currency, I mean, yeah, so what? like, there are many reserve currencies. We'd still be able to invest domestically. Um, we'd have to like reevaluate what trade might look like. But, um, you know, it's, it's not like some collapse is imminent. I think we really need to reject that myth.
0: And I'm not sure if this is uh, just to summarize, and I think a misconception that when people, you know, going back to, to the question of socialism and capitalism, it's not like MMT eliminates like private market economy, correct? Well, no. So, you
1: know, again, it's, you know, it's just a, a framework for how a monetary system operates and, and what you can do and how you can think about that. But there are still political questions about what do you, what do you want to do with this? Um, you, you have these implications, you have these insights, where do we go from here? So, you know, progressive MMTers like myself who identify along the values of democratic socialism, um, I think we 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 really think about things as moving towards a world that is much more socially and democratically just where control over our lives is is much less held in the hands of people that have no accountability uh things like that right so how do you organize the relationship between aspects of private property um and ownership and these things you know i don't know I can't give you like a blueprint to that. I think that's something that emerges from democracy itself. I think part of like social movement building is to provide the, the kind of um, the knowledge and the demands and the information that's going to give us like that pathway. Right. I'm, I'm a big proponent of worker cooperatives. I think like that's a big part of our future. I think we need to like develop society and give people more, uh, more of the legal support and, and financial support to establish, cultivate democratic ownership of firms. Um, so that's that's really important too and also in other parts of, of society. So you know it's it's not I don't think like any viable uh, political solution is something where you snap your fingers and private property is gone as we know it. This is this is a work in progress uh, to, to building alternatives. To, it's not really just private property. It's just the fact that like a, a small oligarchic elite of capitalists own everything and an entire cultural system premised on supremacy and imperialism and nationalism exists to kind of justify and perpetuate this as well. And so um, that's, that's some heavy stuff, you know, that's some heavy shit. <laughs> we got, we got our work cut out for us. Um, But it's like, it's kind of like an ongoing, it's an ongoing fight. But I also want to kind of point something out that that MMT brings to the table. And uh, it comes from a colleague of mine named Scott Ferguson. And um, he talks about how we've kind of gotten to this point where we only think of politics as like battles for power. And we've forgotten something that was very present during Greek, ancient Greek times and uh, medieval times as well, and he calls this the politics of care or the politics of maintenance. And for him, this is essential, where um, you know politics involves power, but it also involves care, and it's kind of like this ongoing reproduction of like the good life, right? Uh, and so his one of his critiques is like the the historical process of modernism of modernity has like pushed care into the shadows, has foreclosed this idea of care and only focused on power as if politics just involves a bunch of like different agents clashing against one another, trying to take control. You know, Even the proletariat versus capitalist uh, dialectic here involves this just like this, this battle. And it's like, okay, the idea is like, once the proletariat takes control of power at this like very important point, which is the material, the means of production, then like we will bring about this new world. Uh, you know, S- Scott provides a really important critique to this to kind of say like politics doesn't, can't be reduced to like this one point of like where, um, uh, where society kind of all comes down to like gravity uh, which is like the means of production or whatnot. That doesn't mean like we, don't, we shouldn't talk about or Worry or or discuss how to best organize production work, but it also means um, we need to think about what happens. What he calls at a uh, politics at a distance, which is like this idea of the polity uh, provisioning investment provisioning money at a distance for caretaking, so for providing healthcare, for providing education, for you know organizing to do different things, different projects, the arts. All of these things um, are critical to a good society. And so I think like bringing back this idea of care, which Scott sees as like most embodied in a public understanding of money, uh, is a big part of like building some kind of anti-capitalist or post-capitalist politics.
0: Yeah, I think that really fits well with the idea of integral politics, where you can bring in these other things that maybe don't really have a seat at the table, and especially if you don't speak sort of this material language of economies. And, you know, it's just like you're, you're it's sort of dismissed as sort of not important or pie in the sky stuff. But I think what's fun, at least what this conversation could be like is once you can kind of, what I think when I read MMT is that it can it's an argument for how you can provide, you sort of raise the floor. You, you you create that safety net where you can provide education, healthcare, the very foundational things. So you can, like you said at the beginning of the, the podcast, begin to flourish. And then it becomes really fun about what this society, you know, can actually look like once you sort of uh, can do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the, I guess one, the, one of the ways that my interest in integral approaches to philosophy and what led me to MMT kind of crossed paths was this idea that economic systems or economic categories don't exist independently as their own thing in the way modern economics assumes it does. Uh, And even materialists kind of make this assumption that like, you know, the thing that drives history are material conditions, and everything else is kind of like this byproduct of that. You know, I, I, I come from more of a tradition, you can call it integral, but it, 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 it understands that material reality doesn't have any meaning outside of uh, consciousness, culture, um, thought, and social, sociality itself, relatedness itself. So um, I think that's a really, really important thing. And it's not to kind of say that, therefore everything starts with ideas or with the mental world. It, it, it actually rejects that binary altogether. It's, it's not idealist versus materialist. It's, it, you know, it's the very process of social being is this constitutive nature between language, sociality, ideas, and the material together. Um, And that's kind of really where where I come from and where I approach this work. And, you know, MMT emphasizes that in addition to some of these um, kind of fights over political participation and and work and labor, there's there's a kind of affective or conceptual labor that comes in the process of investment and policy creation, right? It's like these, these conceptual affective battles over like what laws do we want to create? How do we provision meaning to our polity? And what do we want to invest in? And that those are just as important as like the, you know, so-called material instances of reality itself, right? Like poetry. I mean, it's funny because like we, we've been in like all of these Twitter debates recently with with people that kind of like scoff at like poetry or these other things as like, you know, being these superfluous ideas that have nothing to do with the reality of the base of the economic base. And I think that's a real unfortunate problem that quite frankly has a lot of fascist undertones to it. Um you know
2: so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean yeah go ahead Ron. I was just gonna follow up with since we're waxing philosophical there for a while. I wanted to ask about kind of your thoughts on on social ontology. And the ethical ramifications of that, especially in providing a counterweight theory to kind of the radical individualism of classical liberalism, libertarianism, and so forth. And I'm reminded of how Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is no such thing as society, only individuals and their families, right? Yeah. And my frustration when I get into debates with libertarians, and I agree with you what when you said that the sphere of individual rights and autonomy. Uh, and agency are, are important and that's that's a dimension of reality that we need to preserve on ethical and legal and political level but it's not the whole story right so whenever they're like a oh, taxes theft that's mine not yours so any you know it, it's like this um slippery slope to anarcho capitalism by default that to me it's like well i mean that's that's you guys are missing like other dimensions of reality right so what just, what are your thoughts of that whole debate and what are some philosophical arguments that we can make you know uh, in terms of concretizing the ontology of the social and the collective to push back against this radical individualism.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really key. And, and the work of, of Scott Ferguson really focuses on this. His book is called Declarations of Dependence, which is like a, a cool little spin on Declaration of Independence. And uh, some of his students have gone on to, to, his former students have gone on to produce a podcast called Superstructure. <clears throat> Uh, which is kind of an inversion of the Marxist idea of base superstructure, to, to tackle this very question itself. And, you know, for, for them, as I was kind of alluding to before, the, the point of departure is not the state of nature as like this individual trying to survive uh, on, by, you know, in, in like a battle with other individuals, but rather um, what they call dependence, ontological social dependence, the very fact that we are just always in this social dependent relationship upon one another. Um, that can take many different forms, right? Like it, it can be structured in different ways. But no matter what, we always lean on one another for something in some way. And um, I think ontologically, the bigger question, the, the bigger kind of insight here is that it, it, it's never just. It, it plays out in partial ways, but like you said, that's never the whole story. All partial dimensions of uh, social reality in somehow connect to the whole as well. So so, so for like MMT and, and, and the theory behind it, which is in a, in a lot of ways a legal theory, it is kind of saying that in whatever way that we participate politically with the world, we are always... And everywhere connected to uh, the way the polity creates law and invests money. Always. So, you know, home life and the family. Who built the suburbs? Who invested in the suburbs? Who's providing the credit, right? That's always uh, just the very creation of like entering into residential domestic life involves the legal provisioning of how you can have a home and all the things involved there. And then the investment part of like, who provided this, you know, space to begin with. Um, and you can go on and on, right? The media, who's, who's providing investment to the media? Is this something we're outsourcing to private banks and private interests? Or are we providing and provisioning a public uh, service to nonprofit media or to public media, whatever, right? So you can arrange this in all different kinds of ways. But but the idea here is like every single way that we participate in society, we are somehow connected to the social whole. And the social whole, uh, which uh, which Scott describes as consisting of meta mediums that he calls law and money. Law and money are kind of these these meta mediums that are always there doing something in, in, in some way. So I think like that's that's a, a really interesting way of seeing, you know, how social systems come about. You think of capitalism. I think a lot of times the left makes what I would think of as a mistake in believing the lies that capitalists themselves tell, like taking capitalists at their word as if there actually is this thing called capital that is this, you know, like Godzilla-like monster that behaves in ways and like it's irreducible and it's just like there in nature. When in fact, there are many, many different legal decisions and um, designs, policy designs and legal designs that give capital and capitalists and capitalism the form that it takes. But it's radically contingent. It could take on many, many different forms uh, as well. It, it can be broken down. And that's kind of the, the, the process I think that, that we're, we're trying to get at. So it's like on one hand, what you can do in terms of providing investment for things that we haven't valued, and on the other hand, too, it's like, you know, um, Nathan Tankis talks a lot about coordination rights, and how we've structured corporate law, and even antitrust law to favor big monopolies and corporations, and to make it really, really difficult for people to organize into cooperatives and collectives and other forms of doing things. But, you know, if we organized and pushed for a policy agenda that provided coordination rights for, you know, collective podcasts to be able to form into entities and get credit and get support, get grants, get legal protection, et cetera, we could do that. And so that's kind of like what, what is being uh, argued for.
2: That's awesome. Just a quick follow-up to that. I, have you studied Habermas at all? Yeah, yeah, Georgian. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I was I was just reading about his attempt to reconcile, you know, the, the classical liberal tradition and the civic republicanist tradition, and and I think he called it like the equi primordial relationship, where it's kind of instead of it's like a chicken or egg thing, where they both feed into each other, right? We have individuals are fine with negative rights that limit arbitrary uh, power or creation by the government, but there also is a social system and self governing democratic process through which all of those laws and regulations and policies come into play. So it's like he's trying to kind of bring a coherence or, or middle ground between these two camps that could be one more focused on an agentic individualist and the other one more collective or Rousseauian, right? And I'm also thinking about, um, like, have you studied Bruno Latour's stuff at all? A little bit. And, you know, some of his work with actor network theory and, and um, the ontology of the social realm, you know? So I think, I think these are interesting uh, philosophical developments that can dovetail with these new economic insights. And, and I'm always looking for those too whenever I argue with like moral libertarians, right? Because it's like, well, we can debate the facts and economic, you know, statistics and, and studies of what's most effective. But then once the argument becomes fact, tax, theft, that's the end of the story, then I'm just like, oh, come on, you know? So it, it's nice to be able to have uh, some-
1: Right, and you know, that's the thing, like uh, taxation is theft only becomes true under a commodity liberal definition of money. That's why it's so important for the system to continue to assert that money is private. And it all gets turned upside down when you realize it's not. And it, it never has been a private thing. It's only we've, we've kind of just like designed it that way currently. Um, but um, you know, just the, the very notion of taxpayer money. Not only does it kind of concede to like a lot of the taxationist theft arguments, it also says that those that those that pay the most in tax have the most value in society, contribute the most to society. You know, as if middle class, upper middle class, and rich people who tend to be white, male, etc., they're carrying the rest of us on their shoulders. And we 're all kind of just like, "Oh, thank you so much for like <laughs> for for allowing us to have schools you know and and and, uh, and this is like not not how how it works, it's not how it has to work, uh, so that's really important. I think another really cool thing because like sometimes you know like like what you were describing from Abramas is is also still to me um, playing into this idea that there is this equilibrium that will kind of like you know come about I think it's still um kind of alluding to the, the liberal neoclassical economic vision of like, you know, actors will just kind of set the free market. Uh, a lot of like self-organizing system language is, is also uh, kind of plays into this as well. Um, and as an alternative to that, you know, this notion that it's not that there are like these agents that produce equilibrium, it's actually that there's an ontological whole that we all depend on. And that whole has access to what uh, Max Seho calls infinity, which is like literally language, meaning, numbers are infinite. And so it's through that. That's why they, they kind of view law and money as this meta medium, because it access these, these, these forms of infinity. So how you organize governance it, you know, it's not like that civil, civil life doesn't exist, civic life doesn't exist as this other thing that balances out with political life or with individual life. It's that they're both constructed by the whole and how we decide to set those boundaries, right? Like where does civil life happen and under what conditions and according to who and what do we fund and provide law to and how, do, where, you know, where are the, the separations between political and civil life? That's all contingent. It's all for grabs. And these notions of infinity, numbers, meaning, language, um, assignment of value, that's how, that's what we use to give shape to the material world, which is constrained, right? Like, infinity exists on one level, but it's not like humans are not infinite. We die. We have limits. The Earth has limits. So there's constraints. Uh, There's definitely constraints, but we also have the potential to pr- produce and reproduce. We can make new things. We can reproduce ourselves. We can, we can create stuff. We can create art. Uh, we can re-articulate. We can reshape what meaning is, how meaning is assigned to things. And so I think like this is kind of the other way, the other angle to look at it as like, how do we decide to shape the polity?
0: So, you. Here- Prior to this, uh, before starting the recording, you talked, to, or maybe it was during the recording. I can't remember about post MMT, yeah. and I'm really, in, and I'm really interested in or right post-MMT. now. The, what's that? This was all post MMT. I just went hard. In, okay. In, yeah. Post. You also kind of talked about a strategy, and right now I, I get the sense, and we talked about it about that incoherent narrative that the left, or at least this version of how. The par- a new paradigm is emerging. It seems splintered. You, you've mentioned individuals, but I've yet to see an active voice where you, or maybe even a media source where you can tune, tune into this and people are buying into this bar- paradigm. Um, I, now is AOC sort of, in your opinion, the, the leading uh, edge with sort of the, the, on the political side of being the voice for sort of this paradigm in your opinion? I think she's yeah I think she's one of the voices
1: that's that's like holding on to this uh, what I would call post scarcity politics um, I think she understands and, and is able to integrate quite well things like valuing um, the way you know gender and race and some of these things kind of shape experience differently while at the same time understanding you know, that that can be very much exploited by very oligarchic corporate interests and also understanding that there, there are definitely like, like we need healthcare and these things are universal rights, right? I think she, it's difficult for a lot of people in the United States to hold those two things as like both and. and I think she does that well. Um, so I would say like as part of like this MMT, post MMT, um, Superstructural politics that's in development. You know, she represents aspects of it, right? Not fully, not totally, but partially. Um, and our idea is really to kind of infiltrate, sometimes not always in a very loud, visible way, but a lot of institutions and start to push people and shift things from the inside in a very similar way that the neoliberal thought collective did throughout the 20th, the second half of the 20th century. Um, So, you know, we kind of want to have like our people, you know, in, in on on the Hill in DC, in media spaces, in social movements, having these conversations about post-scarcity, having, you know, reminding people that we can always afford it. um, Pushing this, Uh, idea that um, you know society is like not not reducible to these like individual parts that compete with one another but rather is like this nested so that's the other part too that I forgot to mention that it's it's not just that we like live that we're all connected to an interdependent social whole it's also nested right there's different layers and levels that kind of build off of one another right like One example of this could be money in that ultimately in the political jurisdiction we call the United States, the US government has the ultimate authority over the the dollar, but banks also create money too, but it's nested within the dollar system that the the, the government created. And if one of us wanted to like create an IOU and issue it, we can do that, it's just down here. And if we got the Federal Reserve to, to buy our bond, and, and, and we could do that, right? And so some people are now saying like universities that are like experiencing this crisis because they don't, this um, financial crisis should start to issue their own money and get the Federal Reserve to buy it uh, and to give it value so that they can like, because cause what I mean, they got people, they got resources, they, they got to keep going. But this, this crisis is not letting them. So we can find ways to issue credit, issue debt, and because this is a nested system, you know if we make the right moves with the right levers we can we can kind of uh, you know cultivate this this capacity
0: yeah, and I think that fits well with sort of people that are familiar with an integral background to sort of get that sort of uh, uh, holonarchy. I think is how Wilbur describes it um, yeah. Yeah. so a little bit too I think you know one of the things we've been trying to do with growing down is bring in you know sort of some and I think we touched on this episode about a sort of a spiritual metaphysical sort of understanding of why, why this is important. I think you definitely touched on some of the actual people that are involved that are trying to uh, form these ideas in our society. Um, anything else that you think um, people that people we should know, and you talk about, we like, are you part of this organization? Is it a secret club? Like wh- who who's kind of uh, where do you see yourself sort of in the next year? Where, where is your energy going? And when you talked about strategy, what what is that current strategy? Just to continue to press on the Hill and media outlets, et cetera? Yeah.
1: Um, so what what started as, you know, the story of MMT is one that starts with like a blog and, a, you know, some economists and, uh, and, and a person named Warren Mosler, who was like on Wall Street, they all kind of came to these similar conclusions and they kind of worked together to build these insights and then eventually started a blog. Uh, but over time it started to get a little bit more popular and eventually a group of, of people, uh, younger people, late twenties, early thirties, uh, try, organize an, uh, a group called the modern money network. And it started off as a student group and that's kind of where I was, you know, I joined up at that point. Um, a lot of the takeoff that we've seen in MMT, I think has happened because of the work of, of this group, the Modern Money Network. Um, a lot of st- strategic work, a lot of like, let's see the big picture. Um, while some of the left is kind of like all over the place and you know saying different things at different times, we've been really consistent taxpayer money is bullshit. Taxes don't finance spending. We can pay for it. Boom, boom, hitting the same things, right? Today, as, as MMT has gotten like much more popular, people sometimes respond to us thinking that it's a gotcha question, you know, like, what if the US dollar isn't the reserve currency anymore? Ah, we'll get you there, right? When like a lot of these people were having these debates 10 years ago, at the very meticulous level, and nobody was listening to them because it was like total marginal thing. So like now we're here and it's like we've very, and, and, and I, like, you know, some of my colleagues have spent significantly more years deeply embedded in these things than I have. So there's just a lot of preparation behind all of this. So we're going to continue to, to, to meticulously push forward on this message that we're very, very committed on. It's even, I think, what made Bernie very popular too. He had his message. He stuck to it he was consistent. Consistency is very important um, and be in, 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 many different, different spaces. Um, so that organization now is kind of like going to give, um, going to give birth to, to some other organizations that are going to be focused more on like lobbying and organizing, and then more kind of uh, mainstream think tank research production kind of stuff. And just kind of take it to that, to that next level. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like culturally, and, and if you could say like spiritually, to challenge the, the myth of scarcity, um, it, it does have these kinds of profound effects. Um, when you think of, you know, for me, like art is very, very connected to the spiritual world. And for throughout the history of of modernity, I think we've really seen art as in conflict with money, you know, like two different things. Money is kind of like the the bad world, but it's like the political world. And then money is where we redeem ourselves or art is where we redeem ourselves spiritually. And, um, you know, many people in the new left, in, in the Frankfurt School and critical theorists, we're kind of counting on money, or I'm sorry, we're kind of counting on art to save us from the bad things of like capital and money and all these things, right? And then in the 20th century, like it didn't really happen, and in some ways, art got commodified <laughs> and um, was kind of like sucked into this this world. And so there's kind of like a, a place of a bit of nihilism, but but MMT reminds us that that opposition is also false where money has to be intrinsically this alienating thing that, you know, is in, is in conflict with art. We can finance through public money, public art and the creation of all kinds of projects that are not for profit that are not, you know, uh, you know, and, and I, and you know, I enjoyed the Avengers movies. They're, you know, they have some good qualities too, but I also recognize the limitations that they're that they're within. Um, but a lot of like our best impulses can also be organized through public money, and so you know, thinking about a green new deal and a jobs guarantee, a lot of that, a lot of moving to the process of shifting towards a post-carbon economy involves far more investment in art uh, and in a, a far more um, celebration of what art can do, especially when given the kind of support and conditions that help it thrive. And I think that's very spiritual as well.
2: Absolutely, Um, beautifully said, Andres. And this kind of nicely segues into my last question, which is about uh, something I'm very passionate about, which is civic engagement and revitalizing democracy and just the public life, you know, in kind of a John Dewey-esque kind of a way, right? And okay. so I'm, I'm curious if you can just riff on that and the implications of um, the Green New Deal or Teal New Deal and how that can kind of revive civic engagement and, and public interest and, and trust. And also just what are, and also, you know, if you want to talk about some ideas of like some democracy reforms that could take place structurally that could help engage the public more uh, in a time where we're really seeing kind of a breakdown in, in civic life.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's so important. And a lot of what the green new deal would need to be successful are rebuilding public administrative capacity so that like the government can actually do things because it's been so gutted, you know, essentially we've, we've, we've transformed our state to be good at war, incarceration and policing. And that's basically it. (laughs) And, uh, and we really got to transform that thing into like delivering the goods that we need so badly. Right. But like, that's not going to work if it's just like this top down hierarchical thing in all, in all circumstances. I think there's a time and place for hierarchy, but it's not always right. So we're going to also have to need, we're going to have to find out how to democratize the state too. And that I think can only happen with a vibrant civil society that is like constantly engaged in political life. In a way, and I think this is key too, and, and I think the left kind of lacks this ability in a way that isn't just about burning shit down. And again, I'm with the rioters. I, I, you know, it, you have communities that have been absolutely devastated and then you set up a Tesla. Like, I'm sorry, right? When you're killing people, when you're killing black people, And, you know, people's quality of life is just absolutely dismal. You know, civil disobedience means you're going to screw up. You're going to screw with some property. Like, I'm sorry. Like, right. I think that that's, 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 that's fine. But we also need to be able to develop a politics of care and of civic engagement in civil life uh, that goes in addition to like when it's appropriate to resist and fight. And that's going to be really, really key as well. Um, So institution building is going to be really important. I think things like participatory budgeting is going to be really important. Sortition, um, um, citizens assemblies. There are many experiments. Um, you know, even worker cooperatives and kind of the social solidarity economy. There, there are many experiments, I think, that we can try to, that can, that can facilitate this, this, this process. But, um, you know, there, there's got to be a politics of, like, social movement building. And so much of this is, like, challenging what the Democratic Party's establishment is grounded on, which is, like, just technocratic expertise because you went to Georgetown University and, you know, <laughs> you go to galas and you wear a lot of lanyards and, like, that's it. Um, and, and like, that's the view of politics, you know, the right people, you go, you get invited to the right places, you, you work your way up, you get your ticket, you get your golden ticket to the, you know, to the show and that's politics. And we're really trying I think what AOC represents, what the squad represents, what the Sunrise Movement represents is we're really trying to like reinvigorate this, this idea of social movement politics that fights, but that's also celebratory, that, that engages in, festive festive like experiences as well um, that can bring in people that have been apolitical. Most of the country doesn't vote. Most of the country isn't political, right? How do we bring in people um, to be political? Restorative justice, I think is key. I think especially right now where some of the left is struggling with like when people screw up within their own ranks and it's like, are we, are we going to cancel them? And like, is that it? Like you're forever, you're going to be seen as like this horrible person or like we're going to find ways to like build restorative justice. That's really, really important as well, because like, that's really burning out a lot of the left too. We're, you know, we're so we're passionate, we're committed, we're trying to change the world. And sometimes it just like, it drives us crazy and somebody does something, some dumb shit or a transgression and, you know, like learning how to work through that, is hard. We're going to have to find ways to do it, especially since we're committed, at least I am, to like an abolitionist politics. How do we get to a world where we don't need prisons and police anymore, right? I, I think these all have to be ingrained in our practices. So um, yeah, to me, that's all part of democratic life.
2: Beautiful, thank you. I get uh, goosebumps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Andres, um this is a great conversation. It's always lovely to hear your voice and your take on things. Cause it definitely gives a big picture. You're you, you you have brought in so many different ideas and I think it furthers sort of what we're also trying to do on the podcast. Um, any final thoughts, things you'd like to say to our listeners? Um, yeah. To wrap it all up. Uh,
1: you know, honestly, I think like maybe just acknowledge that we're living in really grim times and that, you know, we're having a great conversation right now, but you know, when we, go, we all go off into our own lives and listeners are gonna go off into their own lives and life is difficult right now. And, and some of us are really struggling, you know, like I've, I've struggled myself uh, throughout my life with like mental health issues and, and things like that. And many of us have. And so just kind of to remind, to remind everybody that, um, you know, you're not alone. We've all gone through many different things. Um, you know, solidarity means uh, understanding that, that we're still all in it together and uh and to not be afraid to 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 reach out um you know to to your friends to people you can count on um and that this sense of of evolving developing understanding that that redemption is possible is connected to transforming the world is connected to transforming the social world that what's what's when others are are in pain, when, when there is injustice for others, even if I'm doing good, it, it you know, it's bringing me down as well.
0: Amen to that. Uh, Andres, thank you so much. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on and hopefully we could have you on again soon. Absolutely. Can't wait.
2: Thank you so much, Andres.
0: Yeah.